Matthew 21. Verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied with a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, Whoa, 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 the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place, Matthew says, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And, verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seat of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies... You have prepared praise, Psalm chapter 8. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Father, I ask tonight that your Holy Spirit would empower your saints and empower me. And that here as a community, we can worship and admire your son and what he did in Jerusalem. We also want to lift up um, the other ministries going on right this minute. We pray for Pastor John and the message that he's delivering to the older saints downstairs. Um, God bless them. And for um, Lucinda and David reigns as they are teaching our children. Well, not ours, but the children. Um, God, that there would be truth rooted in their hearts this night. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Matthew 21. This chapter, this or this event, is one that I picked for our series history because it's, it's a big deal for three reasons. First, this event we celebrate every year in the church on...
on Palm Sunday, the Sunday right before Easter. So to the church, this event's a big deal. Second reason, Matthew cites or refers to at least five Old Testament passages in these 17 verses. At least five. There may be two more allusions, so that makes seven. That's a lot of Old Testament references in one short little narrative. And then the third reason is that this event is recorded in all four Gospels. A very rare thing that all four Gospels recorded the same exact event. So this is clearly a defining moment in the life of Jesus. But what does it mean? Why does this why was he going to the temple on a donkey and throwing people out a big deal? What we're going to see, what I want to show you tonight, is that what Jesus is doing is he's going into the temple, which remember, that's the dwelling place of God. It's where heaven meets earth. It's where God chooses to dwell amongst his people and call them to himself in an intimacy of worship. Jesus is going to that temple and he's essentially telling the people that God's meeting place where he's trying to restore the nations is no longer in a building. That place is in me. I am now the new eternal temple whom I'm calling nations to be restored in myself and we will have a kingdom forever. That's what this whole event says. Now I'm going to show you how it says that so that you understand my logic here. But you, you see what we're, 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 what we're doing is we're reaching the climax. We're almost to that climax where we find out how on earth our story is going to be resolved? We saw a man living with God in Eden, and then man was cast out and exiled, and now man has been in, in an exiled condition, looking to be restored with the God he was made to live with, and we're getting to that point where Jesus is saying, okay, I had the temple set up for that purpose, but it's failed. It never accomplished the purpose of bringing the nations back to God, so here I come, and I'm going to say, move aside temple, new temple, here I am, and mission will be accomplished. So we're reaching the climax of how the nations are going to be restored to God through Jesus, the dwelling place of God where God meets with man, right there in Jesus. So this is what happens. Chapter 21. We call this, in fact, if you have an ESV, your title says the triumphal entry. I actually didn't know that until I just looked at the title. I never look at titles. And I just noticed that that's the same title I gave it. So there you go. It's called The Triumphal Entry, according to ESV and BMC. (laughs) Um, What? And NIV. So with all the authentic... If it doesn't say that, then it's not authentic. Just kidding. So... So this is the event when Jesus rides in on a donkey. We celebrate on Palm Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday because the people cut branches out of the trees, presumably palm branches, and they put them. One account says they waved them. The other says they put, here it says they put them on the ground for Jesus. He rode on a donkey. The point of him riding on a donkey is because Zachariah prophesied that your coming king and deliverer will ride on a donkey. So what Jesus is doing at this moment, riding on the donkey into Jerusalem, he's announcing in public now, He's for a while it's been hush-hush, but now he's announcing out in the open, I am the Messiah. You've all been wondering, but I'm he. I'm the deliverer. I'm here to save you. 
and the people. What? (laughs) They get the picture. They see the donkey and the Messiah on it. They know their prophecy. They think, yes, Rome will be gone. We'll be saved. And so they get so excited and ecstatic. The, The celebration happens spontaneously as they usher Jesus into Jerusalem. Yay, Hosanna, Hosanna, which which means save us, save us. And they're calling him the son of David, a messianic name. And they're ecstatic. What they're thinking is our story that we've been writing for our nation. God has chosen to fit himself in our story. Yes, he has agreed to deliver us from Rome. What's wrong with what I just said? (laughs) It's not our story that God is up to. It's his story. And it's our place to find where we fit in that and Israel's thinking he is coming into our story and fixing it the way we want. Oh, they're in for a surprise because Jesus is not in their story. So that's why they're ecstatic. By the way, when they grab the palm branches, why palm branches? It's um, something that they used a lot. They're around. But one significant point is that about 200 years before this event, the same thing happened. There was a guy named Judas Maccabee who walked up into Jerusalem and the people were ecstatic and they got palm branches to welcome him into Jerusalem because what Judas Maccabee did was there was another empire, not Rome, but they were um, an offshoot of the Greeks and they were controlling Jerusalem and Judah Maccabee got them out of Jerusalem and they were hailing him as a savior and, and waving palm branches, welcome to Jerusalem. So what is going on? Only 200 years later, the same thing's happening, except there's a different person on the donkey, and the people are thinking, deliverance time. So Jesus goes straight to the temple, and he doesn't do anything like this, like, rally the troops, grab the swords. Instead, (laughs) he looks at the priests, he looks at what's going on in the temple, And he, with divine authority, begins flipping tables over and casting people out. And people are panicked in the chaos. And when the dust finally settles, everybody's thinking, what in the world is he doing? You see, no man could just walk into the temple and start telling people what to do. The temple belonged to the king. Jesus is acting as a king in defiance of Rome and in defiance of the priests. And he's taking all this authority on himself. And then, once they're all cast out, the the dust settles. And these gross people start coming into the temple. Matthew calls them the lame and the blind. They weren't allowed in the temple. But when Jesus is there, they start coming in. And he starts healing them. Then, the priests are going, Who said you can do all this? And basically, like, do you hear these children praising you? Tell them to shut up. Don't you get it? And Jesus says, you don't get it. Psalm 8, Psalm 8, he quotes there in verse 16, is a creation psalm. A creation psalm where the psalmist is praising what God did in creation and he's magnifying the role that God gave to Adam in creation. That Adam was to rule creation. And he tells the priests, you don't get it. And so he rebukes them, quotes that psalm. I'll tell you how and why that works in a minute. And then he leaves. So... It's very quick, very sudden, very dramatic, and then done. And the ensuing chapters are a constant battle about what happens here, climaxing in the crucifixion of Jesus. So, 
then our question is, what on earth was so um, pivotal about Jesus going in the temple and flipping a couple tables? What did that do? What did that mean? So what happened? This is what happened, and I'll explain it. Jesus was not simply walking into the temple and saying, there's a problem here, I'm going to help you clean it. So let's roll up the sleeves and go, and he starts getting to work. It wasn't like that. It wasn't just, let me, let me fix what's wrong here. He was in the temple and basically saying, this institution has completely missed its point and purpose, and I'm here to destroy it. It's not going to work anymore. It's over. In other words, Jesus is judging the temple because the temple has failed to accomplish the purpose for which it was built. And so he's saying, it's coming to an end right now. And ironically, when Jesus does this and overturns tables, it doesn't say this, but it's very likely that the whole sacrificial system had to stop in order to clean up the chaos he made. Literally, he's saying, the whole thing ends here, implying that it's going to continue in me. So he's judging the temple because it failed its mission. Now, this will be helpful for some of you newer folk, because this will, what I'll do now is I'm going to review for you what the mission of the temple was, and you'll be connected from Eden all the way to right now. So yay, (laughs) jump on the train. So there, before this incident, we have three temples. Anybody remember the very first temple? Yes. Okay, you guys are shy. I'm glad you guys know. Eden. Eden, and, and we don't have time to get into why, but Eden was portrayed as a temple in which God dwelt in that garden with Adam, and Adam was assigned to be his priest. Adam was assigned to be the one who would take this magnificent garden with God's dwelling presence and and extend it, however long it takes, with his families to continue to extend that presence to the ends of the earth. Adam was a priest. But Adam did not accept his mission. Instead of living in that story God ordained, Adam decided, I would rather live in the selfish story of the serpent. The serpent said, if you eat from this tree, I can do whatever I want. I will be God. I will decide what's right and wrong. That sounds like a better story. Give it to me. And Adam's cast out. He's exiled. That temple, it... it, the purpose to bring all people into that didn't happen. And so then we flash forward to Moses. Moses has now the children of Israel, whom God said Israel is going to be my people. And Moses is told to create, literally, he's told to create a tabernacle. I use the word create because the tabernacle was meant to be a little miniature garden of Eden. It had a lot of similar elements. And so the tabernacle was that one place in all of the cursed earth where Israel could re-experience the blessings of being restored with God. And when, with the building of the tabernacle, God told them this, You can have my presence amongst you if you do these things. 
One, I'm going to make you, this is Exodus 19, I'm going to make you guys into a priesthood. Your entire nation is a priest to the other nations. What does a priest do? A priest represents God to the people. So Israel is supposed to bring the nations to God himself. And then second, Exodus 20, Ten Commandments. God said, these are the ten conditions. These are the ten ways by which you will be my priests. This is how you'll accomplish it. Keep these. Well, Israel doesn't. They don't keep the Ten Commandments. They don't, they're not priests to the nations. Instead, what we find is Israel's adopting their cultures. Rather than trying to bring that culture to God, they're just saying, forget the, temp- the tabernacle, let's just go hang out with them. Completely failed their priesthood. So then, God erects a king over Israel. And the king is now the new, the priest over the entire nation, if you will. Um, he's, like a, he's like a new Adam. And Israel's like that new Eden. And he's supposed to bring the nations to be restored with God. And so Solomon erects a temple where that's supposed to happen. God dwells with Israel and the nations are to come. And Solomon's to be that priest to bring the nations to this temple that he creates. That's the purpose. That was the mission and the design. But Solomon, when the nations come, and they did, they came to Israel. Solomon did not send them to the temple. Solomon sent them to himself. And grabbed their wives. And thus, he sought status over the mission of the temple. And so, that priesthood failed as well. And now we flash forward to the fourth temple. The one that Jesus is at at this time. And he looks at it, the same old story. This house is not used for the nations. At all. Surrounding the temple at this time was this wall. And on the wall was written in these words, Any foreigner who passes this point will be responsible for his own death. So the Jews put this wall up to keep other non-Jewish nations outside of their temple. And if you come in, dead. So, they're all relegated, all the nations that want to come to God. They're all just shoved off into like the most outer reaches of the court possible. And to make things worse, the only place these nations have to come is a little court on the far outside of the temple. The high priest decides to get rid of that too. By bringing all these animals that used to be located outside the temple, he brings them into the temple and starts selling the animals for sacrifices where the Gentiles are supposed to worship. So essentially the Jews are saying is, we've now replaced the nations wanting to worship God with animals. That's what we think of you. (laughs) So this is why Jesus looks upon this scene in verse 13 And he calls this, right there at the end, he says, It's supposed to be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. This doesn't mean that they were ripping people off of money. Alright, it doesn't mean that they were selling the animals, and this might be true, but this isn't what it means. That they're selling the animals for like, what, 30 times more than there were so they can get some money as people buy these sacrificial animals. That may have happened, but that's not what he means when he calls them robbers. When he calls the priests of the temple robbers, he's not saying, 
you rip people off of their money, he's saying you rip people off of being restored with God. You're ripping them off of that opportunity. You're robbing salvation in the place where it's supposed to happen. So they're a den of robbers. On contrast, Jesus says that it's supposed to be a house of prayer. There in verse 13. is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That comes from Isaiah 56 verse 7. And in fact, I would encourage you, if you know where Isaiah is, go to your left and go there. Hold your place here in Matthew. Isaiah 56. Because what's important is not just what Jesus says there. What's important is the passage that he's referring to. You, you following me? He's referring to a larger portion of scripture, and I want us to look at that. So Isaiah 56. And if you really want to be blessed, read the whole chapter in your time, but we're going to read a couple verses. 56 verse 6 says this. And the foreigners, Gentile nations, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these... These refers to the foreigners, the nations. These I will bring to my holy mountain, that's where the temple is, to my holy mountain and make them, the foreigners, joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That's what Jesus quoted. And they're not letting it be for all peoples. So Jesus is saying, listen, Isaiah 56 said that the point of the temple is for all peoples and the foreigner himself. And if you read even earlier, it talks about the eunuch, which was defiling a temple. All these people are supposed to be coming. And you guys aren't letting it happen. And then finally, verse 8. The Lord God who gathered the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So, more than Israel will be gathered to this temple. What Isaiah is foreseeing in 56, he's foreseeing this future eternal temple in which God wins. (laughs) He wins the nations to himself and they worship in that house. And Jesus comes into the temple and says, you guys are a very far cry from what this temple is supposed to be. Therefore, bye-bye. And his prediction, which you see in chapter 24 later, came to pass. There is no temple in Israel. So it failed its mission. Jesus is standing there saying, because it's failed, I am going to replace it. How does he say he's going to replace it? By the very next verse, verse 14. So he clears them all out, and this is what happens. The blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple, and Jesus healed them. You know what's funny? (laughs) That should have been the role of the temple itself, was to allow all peoples 
and to bring healing. Maybe they don't have the power to physically heal, but to bring healing to their souls and their weary, downcast hearts and to lift them up and encourage. But it wasn't happening. But when Jesus steps in, judges the temple, says, you failed your mission, you no more, cut off, I'm the new temple. That's what happened when they came and he healed them there in the temple. Jesus was saying, it's not the building anymore, it's me. You want what the temple's meant to be? you got to come to me. This is where you meet with God. This is where you find Edenic-like restoration. Because that's what he's doing. He's reversing the curse. There's people who can't walk. That's curse. He's reversing it. He's bringing Edenic-like conditions back to humanity. There's people who can't see. He's opening their eyes. He's saying, Eden is here. I am that true temple. You come to me. Forget this den of robbers. I want to restore the nations. This is why he ultimately, well, apart from the will of God, this is the human reason why he ultimately gets crucified. Jesus is threatening the entire Judaic system. It's all collapsing and coming into himself. And the priests can't tolerate this. Because they don't live in God's story. They're trying to fit God in theirs. And this is not working out how they had planned it. So, that's what we see here in Jesus. He is the new, eternal temple where God dwells and restores mankind to himself. There are three applications here that affects us. There's three truths that if Jesus is the new eternal temple, we need to walk in three certain truths. And here they are. Number one, this means that if Jesus is the new eternal temple, then restoration can be found in Jesus alone. There is no religion. There is no philosophy. And there is no society that can reconstruct the Edenic conditions that humanity is yearning for. Let's get more blunt. There is no president, Republicans, that can restore what humanity is missing. Jesus alone is the figure of restoration and that is the only place it will be found. There's no temple. There's no church building. There's no camp experience. It's Jesus himself. And this is beautiful because this means you don't have to hike a pilgrimage to get somewhere. You don't have to accomplish a certain system of works to attain it. You merely have to call out to the sovereign, omnipotent, omnipresent God and say, I want Jesus. And he hears. That is a superior and better temple. As Jesus said in Matthew 12 to the Pharisees, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. This is a temple that works for all people. By the way, (laughs) number two. 
as God's new eternal temple, Jesus offers restoration to all peoples, all nations, all kinds of struggling, pathetic, magnificent, all kinds of people. As a new eternal temple, Jesus offers that to everybody. There's no prejudice here. There's, There's no... Your past is too dirty. I mean, this means that there's no one too lost to be saved. There's no one too exiled to be restored. The ends of the earth, they're not far enough for God's love to reach and restore human beings. And it is the biggest crime on earth to claim that we have a message of restoration, yet to qualify those who can hear or receive. Oh, but of course in our minds, oh, and we know everybody can be saved. Even the Apostle Paul is saved, who hated Jesus and killed his people. I mean, in our minds we know that, but how often does that actually work out in our actions? Um, you know, I'm not going to give you the whole guilt trip about what you do in public, because I'm not going there at all. I, I'm not, but especially, anyway, I'm not going there. But what I want to go to is here. I mean, what about when there's somebody you've never seen before here, and you've just... (laughs) and They're not worthy of our group. Like, like what are you saying? People watch you guys. They watch what you represent. They watch what your group... We're Christians, we're restored people! And they say, well, if I'm not good enough to be friends with them, I wonder what about their whole system of beliefs. I wonder what about their God. Guys, you may think that not... Even knowing someone's name in here may not be a big deal. You're just like, whatever, you know, they've got their own friends, I'm sure. But it could actually be a very big deal if we don't bridge the gap between certain favorite groups and whatnot. And this, of course, extends beyond this place. And this can go down to school. Um, I'm not saying you have to say hi to every stinking person and memorize every single person's name. But you don't begin to go down a checklist and say, well, because he's a bully to me, I'm not there with him. I'm just, he doesn't deserve to hear anything. We don't segregate. We don't um, classify. That bully needs restoration. You don't have to talk to him, but watch the way you act towards him. Same thing goes with the sinners who are known sinners, the partiers who get wasted. I mean, it's so easy for us to have this attitude of like, they like don't even get life. Like they have the most miserable life and they don't even like understand what we have. And, and because they reject us, we, ha- we want to like feel better. So we want to have this air of superiority that we have like some sort of better life than they do. But guys, be careful with that attitude. I understand where that's coming from because it's true. You do have a better life. But be careful how you portray that. You're not triumphant over them. We need to come as a suffering servant that Jesus came to be and show it to them. Um, I can go on and on, but let's not. So number three. Oh, no, hold on. Still under number two. Um, so as the new eternal temple, Jesus erects himself on a hill that's in the center of the world that's accessible for all people. And Paul put it like this in Galatians 3.28. In Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Might not mean anything to us, but he's talking about people types. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Nor is there male or female. For you are all 
one in Christ. That's a strong message. That as the new eternal temple, Jesus brings that restoration for every single person who desires to receive it. Absolutely no conditions. Everybody has the opportunity. And we're to recognize that. And then finally, number three. If Jesus is the new eternal temple, as we've been affirming he is, then what does that mean about us? What are we? Hint, I said it in communion. (laughs) If he's the new eternal temple, then we are part of that temple. What was that? Oh, yes. <laughs> As I read you guys Second Peter, or 1 Peter chapter 2, it says that he is the cornerstone, he is the temple itself, and we are like stones being drawn to him and building a bigger house to include people in this restoration movement. But it goes further and says that as he's a te- like our role within this temple is that we are the priests of the temple. And this connects the whole Bible. Because Adam was the priest of the Eden garden temple. You are the priest of the Jesus temple. And, as the, and Israel was the priest of the tabernacle and that temple. Of course, Adam and Israel failed. But Jesus is standing as the true restoration for all nations, not discriminating. And he's calling us to be the priests of this temple. That is awesome. That is why 1 Peter 2.9 says, this by the direct quotation from Exodus, where God told Israel their priests, Peter applies the same mission to the church. He says, you too are a chosen race and a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for his own possession. Here's the point. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Or, put it in our terminology, who called you out of exile and into restoration. We're his priests to proclaim that to people. Now, if we're priests of his temple, there is no such thing as, I'm in the temple, so I'm a priest. I'm out of the temple, so I'm not a priest. Jesus isn't a location where you can do that. He's a position in which you are identified with. And you don't get to choose, I'm no longer a priest, unless you're choosing, I'm no longer part of the temple of Christ. You are a priest 24-7. You are the representative of restoration to the nations in all realms of life. School, baseball, the way you handle your body before marriage, what you eat, what you watch, what you say, how you carry your attitude. And the more I looked at this passage, it started to jump at me this morning. Jesus had the same problem with the priests themselves in the temple. It wasn't just that the building was failing to draw nations. It's that the people working in it, the priests, were failing to be priests to the nations. He does this two ways. The first is in verse 16. And 
and uh, the priests are having a problem with Jesus. And he says to, they say to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus says to the priests, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes? You have prepared praise? Now, what's he saying here? As I alluded to earlier, this is a quotation out of Psalm 8. Psalm 8 was a psalm that was reflecting upon the creation of the world, and specifically, when you read the whole thing, it's specifically reflecting upon the role of Adam in creation. What was the role of Adam in creation? I'm stretching you guys all the way back to the very beginning of the series. Remember the role of Adam? God said in Genesis 1.28, You are to have dominion over my creation. To to, to subdue the land, you're to multiply. You're to bring my image, because that's what he was. He was made in God's image. You're to bring my image across the world. And in Genesis 2.15, he defined that by telling Adam, you are a priest who is supposed to work the garden and keep the garden. Those are temple terms, work and keep. That was Adam's role. So what is Jesus saying to the priests? (laughs) Not only is he saying that babies get what I'm up to in my story and they are willing to participate and you religious leaders are not willing to. Not only is he saying that, but I think he's telling the priests, you guys are like Adam. You guys are like Adam in that he failed his mission as a priest to bring my presence and temple to the ends of the earth. Adam failed because he sought the selfish story of the serpent rather than extending Eden to the ends of the earth. And he's telling the priest, perhaps, you guys are like him in that you don't want to expand this temple and its message to the ends of the earth. You'd rather buy into your selfish story and say, we want God to fit in our mold. So you failed as my priest. Second is in verse 13. And we already looked at this. But he says that it is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. What I didn't tell you? Because remember, robbers doesn't mean they're robbing money. It means they're robbing restoration, the opportunity from the people. What I didn't tell you is den of robbers is a phrase that comes from Jeremiah 7 verse 11. So Jesus didn't basically invent a nice image of what... It's, it's like your robbers. He's saying what you're doing is exactly what the old Israelites did with the old temple in Jeremiah 7. What, what did those priests and Israelites do? Well... When you read the chapter of Jeremiah 7, this is essentially what God is saying to them. He has a problem with the Israelites because they're doing this. Inside the temple, when they go to worship, they're all like, yeah, we're a nation of priests, we love Yahweh. And then they go outside the temple, and God has this list of things they're doing to each other and to the nations around them. And he's saying, it's not matching up. You're a priest in the temple, but you're not a priest when you go out of the temple. You've completely segregated your lives into two separate things. And Jesus perhaps is saying that same thing to these priests. You guys have completely separated your ministry of priesthood. Here you're a priest, but here you can do whatever you want. The point is, they failed to allow their priesthood to invade every single aspect of life. And it's amazing how many Christians do the same thing. 
you can talk to a girl who's having sex with her boyfriend, boyfriend, not husband, okay? And be told, listen, you're not supposed to do that as a Christian. And she can just say, I don't care. I don't get why I can't be a Christian and do what I want. That's what Israel is doing. I'm a priest when I feel like it, but I'm not when I don't. I can live in my story. Jesus is calling us as his priests to take that call seriously. You can't just say, I'm a priest when I'm with God, and then I'm over here, I'm not a priest. Because Jesus at the temple is everywhere you go. You've received the Spirit. There's no such thing as, I can't say that in this place. I hear that all the time. Oops, excuse me, I don't say that here. And like what? You say that at school? You say that at home? Like, you're not getting it. You're a priest at school and at home and at work and in your free time and here. That's what it means when Jesus is the temple. It's no longer a location where you can hop in and out. You're always in the temple. You're always a priest, no matter who you're before, what you're doing. And so if we decide to start saying, I'll be a priest now and I won't now, I can do what I want over here. I'll live in God's story now and I'll live in mine now and just keep hopping back and forth. You have essentially become a den of robbers. And you are stealing restoration from the people around you. You're essentially stealing any opportunity for them of desiring to be with a God that you claim is so great. So, Tree of Life, please, let's not be like the priests in this temple. Not be a den of robbers who just seek to live our life, our story, and rob opportunity from people. But that we take our priesthood everywhere we go and realize that we're representing the God who's calling all nations to himself. And what we're living, what we're doing, how we're choosing to be is communicating that message. So we can either be a kingdom of priests in Jesus or we can be a ragtag group of robbers in a den. So, Father, I ask that you be merciful upon our failures right now. Because we indeed deserve severe rebuke. But your grace is way too kind. And we're thankful that you're patient with us. So, Lord, I pray that you would make my brothers and sisters a tree of life would be indeed a priesthood at all times of our lives and that that priesthood would invade every realm of our lives, that we would not be guilty of stealing restoration from others. Um, So, God, to do this, we, we can't on our own, so we ask, as we always do, that Spirit of living God, you would fall afresh on us tonight, that you would melt us out of our story and mold us into your story that you would use us, and that you would fill us with your power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.